I invite you to turn with me in your Bible to the uh, to the book of Hosea. I just looked in the Pew Bible. It's in uh, no, uh, page 892. If you're unfamiliar where the book of Hosea might be hidden. Um, I think we're going to, just for a little bit of context, um, read um, the first six verses of chapter 1, and then we'll turn over to chapter 3. So Hosea chapter 1, verses 1 through 6 will be our first reading, and then we'll turn to Hosea chapter 3, which will be our text for this evening, for this morning, sorry. The word of the Lord came that came to Hosea, the son of Beri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the God, but forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Dibilim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. And if we could turn to Hosea chapter 3. And we'll read there verses 1 through 5, the whole chapter. And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and lethal of barley. And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not pay, play the whore or belong to another man, so will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. So far the reading of God's word. Dear congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is this the greatest chapter in the Bible? As I was thumbing through some commentaries, James Montgomery Boyce exclaimed, The third chapter of Hosea is, in my judgment, the greatest chapter in the Bible, because it portrays the greatest story in the Bible. The death of our Lord Jesus Christ for his people in the most concise and poignant form to be found anywhere. Now what a bold thing to say, there are many great chapters in the Bible. I have my favorites, as I'm sure you have yours. But could the greatest chapter in the Bible be nestled in a book of a minor prophet found in the least marked up part of our Bibles? 
Greatest or not, chapter 3 of Hosea illustrates a full portrait of redemption. We see the fallenness of Israel into idolatry, the cost of their redemption, and the reconciliation of Israel as they come to enjoy the goodness of the Lord. So let's explore this morning as we consider our theme, a startling portrait of redemption. Point number one, the love that loves again the unlovable. Point number two, the cost of redemption. And point number three, love's demand, which brings victory. Point number one, the love that loves again the unlovable. Verse one of chapter three sets the tone for the remainder of the chapter with an important word. Again, love the unlovable. You could almost say with, again with a sigh when you look at the history of Israel. See, the Lord is painting a picture for Hosea and for further generations to come. A portrait of the Lord's love for the people of Israel. It's a further and continual reminder to the nation of Israel. The Lord is the one who redeems his people. The Lord tells Hosea, go again to love her, to go back to redeem his wife from the depths of adultery that she has slid into. We read, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Now what would our response be to such a demand by the Lord? I beg your pardon, Lord? You want me to do what? This must be a joke, right? You want me to, again, love this woman who has shown herself to be unlovable. This woman who is redeemed from whoredom only to run back to this heinous sin. You want me to love her just as you love Israel? Even though she has turned her back to me and ran back to her sin. See, Lord's creating that portrait for Hosea. A parallel comparison of Hosea's covenant of marriage to Gomer and his own with Israel. Hosea is even told how to love Gomer. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love their cakes, as the Lord sees Israel's being armed, chasing after other gods and taking on the culture of the nations that surround her. The raisin cake signifying just that. Israel's was engaged in pagan idol worship, seeking the culture that surrounds them. See, Israel is easily seduced, giving into their desires. They're walking by sight. They're putting their trust in what they can taste, by what they can touch, and what they can see. They're not walking by faith. This is repeated behavior by the nation of Israel. Just like wandering through the wilderness, Israel longed for the things of Egypt. Even though God provided the needs of his people, Israel looked back to what they once had in Egypt, longing for the grain, for the figs, for the grapes, for the pomegranates. Remember also Israel is in direct violation of what they professed they would do in Exodus 20 verse 3. And the regiving of the law in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 7. You shall have no other deities 
before me. But we read in Hosea chapter 3, verse 1, they are turning to other deities. Even though Israel does not uphold what they are supposed to do, the Lord continues to extend to Israel his grace and his mercy. Yet, Israel returns to its sin, the sin it seems to love so much. And it's easy for us to scoff at the sins of Israel. How could they do such thing? All the miracles that they would have seen, being led by a pillar of smoke by day and fire by night, but they did not fully comprehend the strong arm of the Lord who saves. But are we any different on our pilgrimage through sanctification? Do we long for what the culture around us has? Are we standing at the fence, bare feet of the luscious green grass, looking out into the desert, the valley of death that is the world, and confused as to what side of the fence is better? Has our thirst not been quenched by the well of the living water, only to wonder what swamp water might taste like? thinking, is this really better than what the world has to offer? So the ignorance of the other side of the fence sparks the curiosity about it. We start to sound like the serpent in the garden, trying to convince ourselves, are we missing out on something better? We grumble like the psalmist in Psalm 73, envious of the prosperity of the wicked, only to find ourselves full circle in the same situation as Israel, longing for the culture that surrounds us, carving idols for ourselves that are deaf, that are blind, that are dumb. See, it's easy to fall into that snare. The Christian pilgrimage is hard. There's suffering. There's heartache. There's trials and temptations. There's ridicule and slander. And as we return to the mud puddle that is our sin, as we rub it on our faces, as we smush it through our fingers and wiggle it in our toes, but that mud puddle is too polite of an illustration. Our sin is more like a stagnant swamp, a swamp that smells, that's infested with weeds that entangle us, leeches that stick to us, and after swimming you're left with an itch and a festering rash. But God takes us from that swamp and cleans us up, only for us to return to that swamp again and again and again and again and again. And as we go, maybe we slowly learn and keep away for a period of time, but just like Israel, we find, we forget and find ourselves right back at the swamp of our sin. With an outstretched arm, God takes us from that swamp and shows us what true love means. That even though we love our vile, stagnant swamp, the Lord shows us love by continually extending his love and grace to us. He demonstrates a patience beyond all understanding, a patience that we cannot even comprehend as our agitation level rises when our one-day packages are delayed by a couple of days.
And how do we reflect or what is our response to God extending his mighty arm of salvation to us? Do we look inward and doubt our faith because of our lack of obedience? Are we frustrated because we feel like we are not doing our part? See, Paul said, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, but it feels like I cannot work anything out. Now, sorrow for sin is a proper response to the transgressions that are committed against God. But instead of that inward reflection of our inabilities, we remember that it is not about us. Paul also says in Philippians that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion the day of Jesus Christ. He will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Not after church, not next week, not by your 65th birthday. See, this Christian pilgrimage takes patience, faith, and trust. And it is exactly what you need. Every trial and tribulation, every blessing and moment of peace, the greatest part of this journey is that Christ is with us every step. All the supplications of strength and the songs of praise, even when we sin or doubt whether it's worth it anymore, Christ is along with us. In the very first verse of Hosea 3, we see an illustration of how much the Lord loves us. Even while we devour the pagan raisin cakes and chase other gods, God demonstrates his love by taking us back, just as Hosea takes back Gomer, his unfaithful wife. How great a demonstration of this love. While we muck around in the swamp of our sin, he does not leave us nor forsake us, but again, he loves us. This startling portrait of God's love is not only seen in Hosea's call to once more love unfaithful Gomer, but the cost to rescue her, to redeem her, is also startling. We'll look at our next point, a startling portrait of the cost of redemption. Such love does not come, out, come without a cost. Everything has a price. If you received a gift, there was a cost that was involved. There was a transaction at some point, service or funds, changed hands. So was the case for Hosea. We read in verse 2, So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and lethic of barley. There is significance to the price that which was paid for Gomer. The barley to signif- signify so that there was no ambiguity. Hosea was re- redeeming Gomer from adultery, which we observe in Numbers 5, verses 13 through 31. The use of barley as the test for idolatry. And a proper connection can be made between the significance of the barley, further demonstrating that Gomer was not only committing adultery, but she was enslaved to it. If this is not the case, why the use of barley? Why not any other grain? Or why not anything else, really? Why not just 15 shekels of silver? You can imagine what this might have been like for Hosea purchasing his wife from the depth of her slavery. It doesn't take us a wild imagination to think what might have been the thoughts of the others who would have seen this transaction taking place. Hosea, I'm sure, would have heard the snickering or the I told you so. What must have been like for Hosea going down to redeem his wife 
other men bartering for her, maybe even seeing some of the main, the same men that would have committed those shameful acts with her. Mocking and low-bid balls, low-balling bids, emphasizing the little worth Gomer possesses. Doing what I would imagine is awkward and uncomfortable, not only to redeem his wife, but also in his obedience to the Lord. Just as it was for Gomer, so it is for us. We are enslaved to our sins, sold to the highest temptation of our flesh. No hope chained and bound, left to the desires of our flesh that now rule over us. Forever stewing in our sins and misery, unable to free yourself, we are right beside Gomer, head down, thinking about past regret, thinking about how maybe we could have done things differently to avoid the situation that we're in, repaying the shoulda, the woulda, the couldas. And as we wallow in our misery, they call out the bids, the low ball bids, further reiterating our lack of worth until we hear sold and slowly lift our head, wondering who our new master might be. What sin will now rule over us? We look up, not to see a new slave master, but the Christ, a Savior, a true Redeemer, Jesus Christ. We come to realize that our debt has been paid for, that we have been adopted and no longer live as a slave, but now we have the right to become children of God. This is not a privilege that can be taken away or an opportunity where we can fail, but it's our right. And we start to wonder, as we all do when we receive such a precious gift, what might the cost have been associated with such a wonderful gift? It was not a lowly 15 shekels of silver and a homer and lethic of barley. It was not material goods that eventually rust and wither away or depreciate in value. It was not a minuscule amount easily reproduced, but it was the but only by his precious blood. Now this is the most mind-wrenching thought in all of scripture. Our inability to understand the Trinity or our inability to reconcile God's sovereignty and man's responsibility is incomparable to trying to understand the depths of the love that Christ must have felt that while we were under God's righteous frown, that Christ laid aside his crown. What might have that been like for Jesus when he decided to lay aside his crown? Did he see all my sins? Every transgression, our back turned to him, our arms crossed. Did he hear our mocking voice crying out? Our doubts, our disbeliefs, our mistrust, or our skepticism? John Flavel, a Puritan writer and pastor, puts it most eloquently in a hypothetical conversation that between the father and the son. The, the reply the son would have given to the father the moment he decided to lay aside his crown. The son replies to the father, Content, father, let it be so. 
Charge it all upon me. I am able to discharge it. And though it prove a kind of undoing to me, though it impoverish all my riches, empty all my treasures, yet I am content to undertake it. It makes you think how rich was Christ. What value could you estimate for his net worth? And he emptied himself for us. He left all his riches and became poor for our sake. Christ took on human flesh and humbled himself as our servant for us. Why would the king of Israel condescend? After whom does he pursue? A dead dog? After a flea? The king of Israel pursued us, a flea, and laid aside his crown for you and for me. As we have gazed at the portrait of redemption, let us now admire the final piece, love demand, and its final end, victory. There was a price that was to be paid, obedience to the Lord's request, and Hosea paid it. There are conditions now for Gomer, now that she has been redeemed, she has been bought for a price. At this point, Hosea could have done whatever he wanted with Gomer. Thoughts of retribution could have gone through his head for the damage that she's caused. But Hosea's love makes demands in which Gomer must abide, cleansing her from the ways in which she used to walk. See, Hosea is giving a prophetic message illustrating to the readers throughout this chapter paralleling the marriage of himself to Gomer that the Lord and the Lord with Israel. For just as Gomer has been purchased and undergoes a process of sanctification, of purification, restoration, and healing, Hosea withholds from Gomer. The conjugatural rights the Lord will withhold from the nation of Israel as they go undergo their purification. John Calvin quotes, the substance of this chapter, that is, was God's purpose to keep a firm hope in the minds of the faithful during the exile. God's people are about to go into exile, and God gives them an illustration. Although it seems like God's people are being divorced from the Lord, the Lord is still with them. The Lord still providing salvation. And this is a firm hope in our minds during our Christian pilgrimage that God will not leave us nor forsake us. And just like he redeemed Gomer again, God illustrates a love deeper than we can imagine that even when we are faithless, he remains faithful. Nestling that hope we have in our heart that we can look to the victory where Hosea reminds Israel, after the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Dear congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, our victory is the peaceful fruit of righteousness that we will experience in the latter days. It may, be, it may feel as if God has divorced from us and left us to our sin, but he still provides salvation for those who put their trust in Jesus Christ. 
He takes us from that swamp of our sin and cleans us, not artificially by a mere rinsing of water, but he scrubs us, every nook and every cranny. And although it is painful when God removes the dead skin around old wounds and carefully removes the foreign object, objects that accumulate in that cut, and as although it may feel that there is no ascetic being used, feeling every poke and every prick, have confidence. As he closes the sutures, that he is the most capable doctor. And on our day of victory, when we are presented before the bridegroom, there will be no more stain of sin, no trace of scars or cuts. We will be perfectly clean, cleansed by the blood of his dear son, Jesus Christ, where we will come to enjoy the full benefits of his goodness for all eternity, glorifying him and enjoying him forever. And this brothers and sisters, is our victory. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you thanking you for such a vivid illustration of your love, Father, that we are not Hosea, but we are Gomer, that you are the one that redeems us and cleanses us and helps us along this Christian pilgrimage as we become more like Christ. And although as this was an illustration for Israel, as they are entering the exile to have a firm hope that the Lord is always with them, though we may not endure the exile that Israel had, Father, we are exiled from your presence until that one day we become fully clean that we may commune with you for all of eternity. We thank you for Christ and it's through his name that we pray. Amen.